We got interested in Nir Shaviv's work because he proposed something really interesting about climate. And the conventional theory right now is that CO2 is the main driver of climate change and the increase in temperature. But he's a physicist and an astrophysicist at that, and so he was looking at more external sources for what's happening on the planet and came up with a galactic cosmic ray hypothesis. And basically, the foundation of it is this. Carbon dioxide produced by humans does contribute to some of the temperature change that we've been seeing on Earth. But there are other factors that are far stronger that are happening on the level of the galaxy that are playing a role. And if we aren't paying attention to those, then we're going to make some pretty serious mistakes when it comes to the technological and social changes that we implement. Which, disclaimer, I do think that we have to implement serious technological and social changes to make the planet habitable. And so this is not a conversation about humans not having to do anything about climate change and it's going to be fine or it's an inevitable disaster. It's more about getting a more complete picture of what is actually happening so that when we act, we act in terms of what is correct, not in terms of what we think is seductive or easy or popular. Yeah, and Nir's also primarily an astrophysicist, so we had the opportunity to discuss the conventional models of how the sun generates its continuous spectrum and got to play with some ideas about the condensed matter nature uh, of the sun. So you're going to enjoy that at the end of this conversation, so stick around. And yeah, if you like it, please share it with somebody that you know. Uh, get down in the comments section, tell us what was cool, tell us what was not cool, tell us where we can go with this next, because we're always sniffing out the next conversation. And if you really like what we do, come join us on our Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash demystifysci. It is such a boon for us whenever anyone joins the Patreon. We have a little celebration because it means that we can keep growing the show. Every dollar that we earn, we put right back into making this show better. Our studio, our cameras, our lighting, our ability to go on the road, our ability to do live streams, all of these depend on viewers like you. So support us on patreon.com slash demystify if you want to help that. Enjoy the conversation. See you next week. The scientific revolution starts now. When we had Chris Kirkland on the show, he was talking about the effect of the galactic transit of the solar system from arm to arm of the galaxy. And that periodicity uh -huh. is thought to be about 200 million years. And so the cycles that he's talking about are very old cycles, which he pegs all the way back 4.5 billion years to say that the earliest rocky continents that formed on the Earth were formed because of one of these periodic transits and that it continues, and so whatever climate cycles we see on a 200-million-year inter interval can be tied to the transit of the galaxy. Because they're really, it's really dense in these arms, right? So there's more chances for interactions with other star systems, I suppose. Okay, so um, okay, I'll tell you what I know. Um, 
when I started working on these topics about 20 years ago, um, uh, I stumbled on the idea that cosmic rays might be affecting the climate. And uh, what I realized is that um, the largest variation that you would expect would be from uh, passages uh, through, <clears throat> sorry, I just, uh, I'm, I'm at the later stages of a, of a cold. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, so uh, the largest variations that you would expect would be from uh, passages through the galactic uh, arms. Uh, the changes that you would get from, say, meteorites or things like that, uh, from uh, bolide impacts, from uh, comet, comets and so forth, uh, are not very large. But because uh, the uh, production of cosmic rays is by massive stars, which are born and die in the spiral arms, uh, you would get very large variations in the cosmic ray flux, um, something of order two or more. In fact, we can place a lower limit of two and a half. And, um, and then what I realized is that you can actually reconstruct the cosmic ray flux using uh, iron meteorites. Uh, and the thing is that uh, meteorites, uh, when they break off their apparent body, they're exposed to cosmic rays. So you start accumulating cosmic ray products, spallation products. And when you look at them, you can, if you have uh, many meteorites, you can uh, reconstruct the cosmic ray flux. Uh, you cannot use the uh, stony meteorites uh, for this time scale because they crumble away on a, on a time scale of uh, tens of millions of years. But the iron meteorites, uh, they, they, uh, they uh, crumble on a time scale of a billion years. So you can use that to reconstruct the cosmic ray flux over a billion years. And you uh, very clearly see uh, an oscillation uh, in the cosmic ray flux with a period of about 145 million years. So you see seven such periodicities over the past billion years. Now, the really interesting thing is that um, the period epochs during which the cosmic ray flux was high uh, correspond to epochs on Earth during which we have had uh, glaciations. Mm. Okay, so like over the past 30 million years, we have uh, had glaciations. 160 million years ago, uh, 400 and something million years ago, and so forth, we had uh, glaciations. Uh, incidentally, one of the glaciations around uh, 700 million years ago was uh, so extensive that people think um, the whole of Earth was uh, was covered by ice. Uh, it's called the Snowball Earth. Um, there's the issues with Snowball Earth. Idea, what, there's, again, there's there's some issues with Snowball Earth. We kind of started to look into it a little while ago, and it seems like there was a different process going on. I I think that what I remember, and again, I could be wrong about this, was that the data for Snowball Earth was relatively. Uh, in, it was it was collected from a small number of places, and there were other places where there were formations that shouldn't have been able to survive glaciation, like mountain ranges and valleys and things that were dated to before Snowball Earth, where if everything was covered yeah. in glaciers, like there's there's a mountain range in South Africa that shouldn't be there if it was covered in glaciers because it would have been ground down. Um, but, yes and no. I mean, for glaciations, for sorry, for glaciers to do the uh, 
um, to have their effect and um, and you know uh, grind away mountains, you need uh, to have weather. But if it's perpetually cold and nothing happens, then the glaciers want to, uh, you know, they won't form those huge valleys and things like that. Mm. Okay. Um, so can we talk about the mechanism by which the cosmic rays lead to glaciation? Uh, yes. Okay, so um, originally we didn't know exactly what the mechanism uh, was. We just saw empirically that uh, when you have more cosmic rays, um, it's uh, called on Earth. And um, the original idea is basically... Uh, okay, the original idea actually goes to the 1950s. Um, there was a physicist by the name of Ney who uh, suggested maybe... Because co cosmic rays are the dominant source of ions in the atmosphere. Um, so maybe uh, here around me or around you, it's uh, ions coming from radon gas emanating from the concrete uh, or the ground below you. But if you go outside, it's basically from cosmic rays. It's uh, high energy particles, which come from supernovae. Uh, when massive stars explode, they eject their, or they accelerate their, their outer layers, and uh, which can move at the speed, which is maybe... Uh, uh, one-tenth the speed of light, or up to one-tenth the speed of light. And um, uh, this produces the shock waves with the interstellar medium, and these shock waves accelerate uh, particles to high energies. So then they, they diffuse around, and uh, eventually when they penetrate the solar system and reach the Earth, uh, they, are the, um, they, can, they hit the atmosphere, and the secondaries can... Uh, precipitate down to about to sea level if, if the energy is high enough. And um, so these particles are the dominant source of ions in the atmosphere. So what uh, Ney suggested uh, was that um, maybe uh, the ions could be playing a role in something in the atmosphere. And if so, uh, it might affect the climate. And the reason it's interesting is that um, cosmic rays uh, the, or the flux of cosmic rays changes not only because of the intrinsic variations in the cosmic ray flux around us, but also because of changes in solar activity. Mm. When the sun is more active and it has a stronger solar wind, less of these cosmic rays can reach the Earth, so we, we have less uh, ionization in the atmosphere. Um, and uh, so a colleague of mine, Henrik Svensmark, uh, in the 1990s, uh, suggested that uh, these uh, cosmic rays and the charge in the atmosphere affects the um, uh, production of cloud condensation nuclei such that uh, when you have more charge, uh, you produce more cloud condensation nuclei. Mm. And when you reach 100% uh, humidity and you need to condense uh, water vapor and form a cloud, you have more... Uh, a cloud condensation nuclei to condense, and then you get clouds with more uh, droplets. So, and these clouds turns out uh, they have um, a higher surface to volume ratio, so they reflect more of the sunlight. You can see a very nice effect which uh, demonstrate this if you uh, Google uh, ship tracks. You will see. Um, 
uh, pictures or satellite pictures, images of clouds, and you'll see paths within the clouds. And these paths are basically uh, the wakes of ships that burned uh, dirty fuel because it's international water. So, you know, they burn the cheapest, dirtiest fuel. And the exhaust particles serve as cloud condensation nuclei. So you see that when you play with the uh, number density of cloud condensation nuclei, you change the properties of the clouds. You make them whiter. They can actually, they actually live longer because it's harder for them to precipitate. Are, are you changing the chemical composition in this case, or are you just changing the electrostatics of the situation? So in the case of the ship tracks, uh, you are injecting a cloud condensation nuclei in the form of the exhaust particles. In the case of charge in the atmosphere, we now know that the um, a charge plays a role in three uh, physical mechanisms, mm. which uh, one increases the nucleation of uh, new particles, and the two others uh, increases, uh, they increase the survival of the aerosols and they grow from small particles to large particles. They nucleate at the size of uh, two or three nanometers, and then they have to grow all the way to 50 nanometers. Uh, for them to serve as cloud condensation nuclei. This is so, so fascinating we have... because we had a gentleman on the show who was trying to explain the role of charge in the formation of cloud systems. And I, I tried to follow up on it. He was just kind of throwing ideas out there. And I, I couldn't find literature on that idea. And, and so I'm really, really interested in, in this mechanism because, you know, the Earth having capacitance and the Earth being set up somewhat like a battery with, you know, there being this char this negatively charged ground layer. And, you know, we have arcing events to the upper roof uh -huh. of the atmosphere. And it seems like there should be a lot of electro uh, electromagnetic, electrostatic processes that dictate our weather, actually. But when you look at how clouds are formed, like you go to read about it, at least in the textbooks, it's pretty much all pressure, temperature, volume related explanations so uh, there were suggestion suggestions by a an atmospheric physicist in texas his name is uh, tinsley and he suggested that the atmospheric um, uh, electric circuit uh, affects the uh, growth rates of the uh, condensation nuclei uh, i don't know whether it's correct or not uh, maybe it is, and it means that there is another effect. I know that, um, like, we, we went to the lab and we found uh, these three mechanisms. Um, so we, we have been holding these experiments for the past maybe 15 years, and it took us a while, but now we know exactly, uh, we can calculate the mechanisms uh, in, from first principles. We can go to the lab and see them uh, taking place. And then we can simulate them in large uh, uh, aerosol, like global aerosol models, and see that uh, what the global effect is, and see that um, that uh, the charge. Uh, okay, so basically, we understand now um, uh, how atmospheric charge uh, affects the number density of cloud condensation nuclei. Um, so basically, this is like the the microphysical link. Uh, I mean, if, if you want, I can explain to you what the uh, mechanisms are. Uh, I do, but I want to I want to hear about those experiments too. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I was going to okay, ask. Okay. What do those look like in yeah, the lab? What do, how do you make um, 
an artificial atmosphere situation. Yeah. So we have a um, <clears throat> uh, seven or eight uh, cubic meter chamber in uh, the basement of uh, of DTU, the Danish Technical University. Uh, I work with uh, Henrik Svensmark, he's my collaborator. And um, so we have, uh, we can control the conditions that you have there, like the temperature, the humidity. Um, and uh, very importantly, we can, uh, we have UV light, which can uh, start the processes which produce the sulfuric acid because you need sulfuric acid to uh, condense the, um, the first uh, nuclei. Um, and we have uh, gamma ray sources with which we can control the ionization level in the chamber. So we can compare situations where you don't we have you have low uh, ionization rate or high ionization rate, and then uh, um, with and, and then we have a various uh, measurement um, instruments. We have. A, an aerosol counter, so we can uh, measure aerosols at different sizes. Um, we have a mass spectrometer where we can measure the um, the, um, the clusters of small, uh, like before things nucleate, you have clusters of several sulfuric acids and several uh, mo uh, water molecules and things like that. So we can actually see everything taking place um, it's then, interesting that the sulfuric acids makes it sound a lot more like Venus's uh, atmosphere than, than Earth's. That's interesting. You choice. have, uh, you know, I know, um, I don't want to frighten you, but uh, you're breathing uh, air with uh, typically anywhere between 10 to the 6 to 10 to the maybe 9 uh, sulfuric uh, molecules per uh, cubic centimeter. Oh no! <laughs> I guess it's all right. My body's figured out how to buffer it. Somehow. Yes, uh, we have been doing it uh, like uh, uh, from uh, from pre-industrial times. Actually, maybe during industrial times we do a little bit more because of the, the SO two in dense in in, um, in highly populated regions. But uh, uh, this is not our problem. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so that's interesting. So you were gonna elaborate on the, the mechanisms by which these uh, these nucleations are... Okay, so the first mechanism is just the fact that... Um, okay, so you need to grow the cluster and when it's only... Uh, when it's only a few molecules in size, um, it's not very stable. Um, so you, you might form like a, a cluster with a... Uh, up to maybe four sulfuric acids, but it will break apart very quickly. However, if it's charged, if you collect a charge, then um, it would more easily collect another sulfuric acid molecule because sulfuric acid is very po uh, polar, uh, dipolar. Um, and um, so basically it would be easier for the cluster to grow. Um, you have this uh, potential barrier which makes it hard for the uh, neutral clusters to grow. But if they are charged, uh, this potential barrier is uh, flat. You pass this barrier, and then when you recombine, if you are uh, large enough, you formed a stable cluster. And this is basically this was um, seen first in two thousand and six or seven. Um, by my colleague, uh, Henrik Svensmark, that's before I joined that experiment. 
Um, and then it was repeated uh, at CERN, and they found basically the same result, that uh, charge increases the nucleation of small uh, aerosols. Mm. Now, um, but then people uh, simulated it in global aerosol models, and they realized that it's insufficient to explain the change in the number density of large uh, cloud condensation nuclei. And the reason is that even if you form more of the small aerosols, uh, as you start, as they start growing and you have more of the large aerosols, any excess in the small aerosols is eaten up, it's scavenged by the large aerosols. So you get a large increase or a large relative increase in the number density of small aerosols, but this relative increase uh, decreases as you propagate to larger and larger aerosols. So people said, uh, ah, uh, this mechanism uh, uh, cannot explain it. Um, a cosmic race cannot be doing uh, anything. So then we uh, scratched our heads for uh, several more years. Um, we had another, we thought of another mechanism. Um, we even had a postdoc do some uh, uh, calculations of some uh, reactions that uh, were missing from the literature. A, like, you know, from, with using uh, tools in, from quantum mechanics. And we thought we had another uh, mechanism uh, in which the um, charge uh, plays a role uh, in nucleating new sulfuric, oh, producing new sulfuric acids. So it could actually operate also at nighttime. Um, and this is interesting because uh, sulfuric acid in nature is formed by uh, oxidation of um, SO2. You have to oxidize it several times. Um, and uh, the hardest part is done through uh, photolysis uh, of, uh, of water uh, by UV. Um, and then uh, the um, uh, OH that you get from the, from the water uh, oxidizes the, the SO2. And is the, no. S, is the SO2 primary? Is that, uh, is that a molecular component that's found? Yeah, so the SO, SO2 that we, sorry, the, um, the SO2 that we have in nature is either emitted directly from, say, volcanic eruptions or things like that, or um, it's a oxidation of, a, of things like uh, a DMS, like dimethyl sulfide, like... Um, when you go to the beach and you have this very typical uh, ocean smell, this is the uh, DMS coming from algae. Mm. Um, and uh, so uh, if it, it's, you have to oxidize it four times to get sulfuric acid, but it happens. What, is there, uh, anyway, is there a, this mechanism... Oh, I have a question. Is there is there a proxy for this the levels of sulfuric acid in the geologic record? Like, can you go back the same way that you can look at, you know, levels of carbon-13 versus carbon-14 in the record? Or oxygen I, isotopes? I, um, I don't know. Okay. I think it's very hard. Uh, you have to realize also that the levels are extremely low. Um, yeah. We're talking about, uh, a, like, uh, parts per trillion or things like that. So it's very hard. And are, is there any chance that those precursors are in flux as well? Like if the SO2, if there's more volcanism uh, at any given point and you're changing the starting ingredients, is there any chance that that sort of, those processes are linked astronomically as well? 
Um, I don't know of astronomical um, processes that affect uh, volcanism. Uh, there were claims, but uh, I don't know how much uh, they add up. Um, we had a we had a NASA program director on the show this summer, and she mentioned that they were going to hold their first conference where they started to seriously investigate the possibility that volcanism and seismicity was somehow pegged to interactions with the sun. Uh, but it was in a very, very early planning stage, it seemed like. If there is, you would get a link. Uh, but, you know... Uh, TBD. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, it's not like... Um, a, well, I don't know. Basically, I don't know. Anyway, so we were uh, we we thought that there, that there was this mechanism, and um, and we searched for it, and uh, it ended up being a wild goose chase. Uh, we were very frustrated, but you know this is a part of uh, of research. Like uh, you can you know be researching something for several years and realize that it's a dead end. Um, and then we discovered uh, two more mechanisms. Um, and the two mechanisms are uh, one of them is it's very simple. Uh, what's your uh, what's your uh, scientific background? Yeah, I was going to say we we know we know all about the dead end uh, experiments from from our own work. Um, I studied microbial electricity, and so I basically was looking at biofilms and how redox active chemicals uh -huh. were used for multicellular signaling. Yeah, and I, I mean, we both chased dead ends. I, I did more of a materials science. I was in biophysics, okay. and I was looking at uh, the elasticity of water under different confinement situations. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we okay. sort of spread the physical. Anyway, space. so no, I just wanted to say where, to understand whether, uh, uh, I mean, at what level to aim my uh, discussion. Uh, obviously, you're not layman. Anyway, so the. Um, um, the first mechanism is very simple. It's called uh, Van der Waals forces. Uh, when you have uh, when the when you have sulfuric acid which is uh, charged, um, it um, uh, it condenses on the uh, small aerosol uh, faster than when it's not charged because uh, um, it polarizes the aerosol. And, and then the aerosol, uh, when it's polarized, it uh, pulls the, um, the sulfuric acid faster. So, uh, so it's a kind of a Van der Waals force. And what happened is that um, it means that when you have more charge in the atmosphere, the small aerosols grow faster. And if they grow faster, they have a smaller chance of being eaten by the large aerosols. Oh, so, okay, let me, I, I have, uh, just to make sure that I'm, I'm understanding all the players involved. So the small aerosols that, that are distinct from the large aerosols, are they, you're saying that there's two species that are already in the atmosphere to begin with, the small ones and the large ones, and you're okay, looking at the growth so, of the small uh, ones? Uh, okay, rewind. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have nothing, okay, you can, you, you, you can have particles on which you can condense uh, clouds uh, and, and, and uh, for example um, a pol pollen from um, from flowers or from trees bacteria uh, as well salt 
particles from a sea spray uh, can serve as cloud condensation or dust from a, from a, the Sahara Desert can serve as cloud condensation nuclei. However, over most of the volume of the atmosphere, you have to grow uh, these particles uh, from scratch. And, the, uh, and the, the first thing to do is you have to nucleate aerosols at the size of maybe two or three nanometers. And then you have to let them grow to uh, sizes of typically 50 nanometers, uh, which is the minimum size you need in order uh, for water to condense when you reach 100 and a little bit uh, percent humidity. Um, so I'm talking about the... Um, the, the nucleation of the small aerosols. So, and, and then, and those aer small aerosols you nucleate from basically sulfuric acid. Um, you can have some, um, a, like in near forest or things like that, you can have other uh, a organic particles of uh, the same source, but over most of the atmosphere, you need the sulfuric acid to uh, nucleate. So the sulfuric acid is... you need to let is, those aerosols grow. So the sulfuric acid is itself, like, de novo what is nucleating. So you're getting, like, kind of crystals of the sulfuric acid. I mean, they're not crystals it's because not you're crystals, saying that they're... It's a droplet, droplet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, a, a, of, of molecules of sulfuric acid in water. Okay. But water is readily available. So yeah. basically what's limiting the process is the number of sulfuric acids. And why is it bad that the larger aggregates that are pollen, dust, bacteria, whatever, why is it bad that those would scavenge those? Because you, you're I saying know, that you, um, need, you need to be able to I'm create... Saying, okay, so uh, pollen, um, etc., uh, the dominant source of uh, aerosols only in a small part of the atmosphere, mm. close to the surface, over land, and so forth. Uh, I'm talking about uh, aerosols which were formed from sulfuric acid. Once they are large, they eat the small aerosols. They, it's a self-limiting process because you form, you nucleate aerosols, you let them grow, and when they are large enough, they scavenge all these small aerosols and they don't let uh, nature produce more aerosols. And, and so what you're saying is that they just, they precipitate out? When they get to a certain well, when size, when they're big, then they're gonna scatter light more. When they're big, they just uh, you know they um, you know they mix in the atmosphere. And when you reach hundred percent humidity, you form a cloud. And then if the if the cloud uh, rains out, then it pre precipitates away. And then you have a clean environment to which you grow new uh, aerosols. Yeah, it's really interesting. We we had talked to somebody a while back who was considering using uh, sulfuric acid, I believe, to combat uh solar irradiation like as a essentially as a what do you call it atmospheric remodeling solution this gentleman at, at harvard i forget uh, david, his name. Keith. david keith yeah, yeah. um and it, it's well, uh, i mean there are, there are several options uh, through which you can um, change the properties of clouds on earth and with that uh, cool the planet if you want uh, I think it's called the geoengineering. Mm. Mm, that's it. That's what I was looking for. Uh, for example, you can uh, uh, use a fertilizer, spread uh, iron in the oceans. A l large uh, parts of the ocean, uh, the amount of, uh, of photosynthesis and uh, algae that you grow is limited by the availability of uh, iron. So if you just uh, spread iron in a form which is uh, 
bio, which is available biologically, and uh, which won't uh, sink uh, very quickly. It will just increase the uh, production of algae, and with that, it will increase the uh, formation of uh, uh, DMS, and you will get more uh, SO2, more sulfuric acid, and you will get more uh, cloud, you'll get uh, something which is uh, uh, whiter, and you will cool the planet. Mm. Well, That's one way. Another option, uh, which is easier, puts a small pod underneath uh, every uh, commercial airline, uh, cost you a few hundred bucks, And uh, let um, airlines uh, scatter, uh, you know, small uh, particles, small aerosols. Uh, if you do that in the stratosphere, then it stays for a, a year or two. And then you reduce this way the um, reflectivity of Earth. So if, um, if we want to cool the planet, uh, there are easy ways, relatively easy ways and cheap compared to other things. Uh, like photovoltaics, uh, this is not the way. Yeah. Well, so hold on. I before we get you know, into, I grew up in a solar house. I mean, awesome. there's the, it's important to find other strategies, and this kind of gets into the, the the sociological question of the application of the technologies that people are developing, which I want to get to because if people are developing the wrong kinds of technologies, then we're 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 forcing ourselves into a dead end where we won't actually solve the problem. But I'm, I'm trying to follow what you were saying about the small aerosols versus the large aerosols, because it seemed to me like you were making a distinction about needing to have conditions where the small aerosols persist without being scavenged by the larger ones. Is that true or did I misunderstand? Uh, in, in, yes, um, I mean, I make the distinction, uh, an artificial distinction, because uh, the large aerosols are those which serve as the cloud condensation nuclear. Um, but, um, uh, but yes, basically the, the idea is um, the fact that you can increase the efficiency with which small aerosols can grow and become large aerosols without being uh, eaten away. So you would create more sites of nucleation that way, as opposed to everything being condensed into one site. Is that... Exactly. So once you form clouds, you have more cloud condensation nuclei, and you form clouds which are whiter, and uh, which you... Um, um, in which you uh, saw in the sheep tracks. Actually, if you wait just a little bit, I can, I can show you a demonstration uh, of how to make a, a cloud in a bottle. Yeah, that'd be yeah, awesome. That'd be amazing, yeah. It exactly uh, demonstrates why playing with the number of cloud condensation nuclei changes the, um, the, prop the, um, the properties of the clouds. Yeah, that yeah. would be, yeah. be freaking so, awesome. Wait... One minute, okay. I'll bring and find uh, okay, a cold bottle or something. Okay, so are you are you following? Like the the, I'm I'm still trying to. So this ties back to the cosmic ray mechanism because the cosmic rays are producing more of these small nucleation sites. I mean, the way that I see it is that thermodynamically speaking for reactions to happen like to make a complex molecule you need to put energy into the system and that could be like a bunsen burner or it seems like it could also be an electrical process because what is electricity if not 
the addition of some sort of atomic motion to the system, and we can tear apart what that motion is exactly. But you're essentially catalyzing these processes that lead to the kind of surface motion on the atoms so they can recombine in these new and interesting ways. But the conversation that we started was about the role of cosmic rays in changing the climate. And so the connection back to cosmic rays is the fact that the cosmic rays are creating the condition to produce more of these small nucleation sites that are scattered throughout the atmosphere rather than continuing cloud formation with just the large nuclei. Mm, mm. Is that the is that the connection? Yeah, he's going to have to eliminate the details of that, but it seems like you want to have if you want to have bigger changes, you need more of the smaller particles, it seems like, right? Yeah. So if we, uh, before we before we do the experiment, I want to clarify that that I've followed the presentation so far. So the connection... Just a second, I want to do, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, it seems like essentially if you have too big of molecules, they fall out of solution, basically. Oops. <laughs> um... Okay. So the the connection back to cosmic rays and the different size of the nucleation particles has to do with the influx of cosmic rays producing more of the small particles rather than the large particles. Okay. So what happens again is uh, when you have a higher flux of cosmic rays, you have more charge in the atmosphere, and when you have more charge in the atmosphere, uh, several things happen. One is that you nucleate more small particles. And the other thing is that these small, a larger fraction of these small particles can grow to become large uh, particles without being eaten by the already formed large particles. Mm, mm, Got it. Mm. Okay. And so that that creates more sites for cloud nucleation as opposed to it exactly. all being concentrated in one place. And longer lived? They live longer? Like they're not falling out of solution? They live longer because it's hard for, uh, for rain to precipitate. Got it. Um, they, uh, they're whiter and there are several other effects. Uh, um, they're more there's, opaque. There's maybe half a dozen different effects. Okay. One of the interesting effects is that clouds... Which, when you have more uh, cloud condensation nuclei, you can uh, switch from something called closed cell convection to open cell convection, which is that, uh, okay, normally, so when you have more uh, cloud condensation nuclei, um, the clouds are whiter, so you have like a, um, a full deck of uh, clouds. Um, and the clouds are, uh, are driven by cooling of the top. And you get convection where the hot air forming the clouds is in the middle of the cells. And on the sides of the cells, you get a sinking of the air. Uh, when you have a fewer cloud condensation nuclei, uh, it's very easy for the droplets to uh, coalesce and to form uh, raindrops and for the cloud to rain away, uh, to precipitate. And what happened is that uh, you get the opposite uh, behavior, that um, a, a, you, 
you drive the, the cloud or the convection by heating the surface. Uh, you get a hot air rising and forming clouds on the cells, on, on the boundaries of the cells. And then uh, the cloud is uh, precipitated away and you get dry air sinking in the middle. And uh, if you uh, Google uh, uh, open cell convection clouds, um, you can see... Um, they're like they, they have holes in them. They're they're, they're like they, they basically they maintain just this the the uh, cloud material appears to just be in these these lines on the exactly. outside. Exactly, so of it's the, the boundaries. And you actually you can see that when you have a, a ship a ship track, you can within the wake of the ship you change the character of the con of the convection because of that. So, um, I mean, it's, it's one effect, but what I'm saying is that there are a lot of several effects which uh, are interesting uh, and take place when you change the number density of cloud condensation nuclei. Okay, okay I th so I think, some of them yeah. are trivial, like for the like the fact that um, you change the albedo because you have a larger surface to volume ratio, and other things are uh, are uh, bizarre, like the change in the in the uh, in the convection, which changes the the albedo of the clouds. So, um, which is the reflectivity. Yeah, because if you have the same, like if you, for, for the same surface area that you're looking at, an open cell has a much lower albedo than a closed cell. Exactly. So let's see this demonstration. Yeah, and if we could just narrate it as we go for people who are listening to you, that would be really good. Uh, we can just describe what, what's going on with this, uh, this demonstration you've got here. Okay, so here we have... Um, it's it's a mineral water bottle, um, and um, if if I shake it, then uh, obviously I reach some kind of equilibrium. Uh, I have up close to one hundred percent humidity inside the bottle, and when I shake it, he's breathing into the bottle now. When I squeeze it. I uh, increase the pressure, and when I, uh, uh, I let go, the pressure decreases, and I should get um, a, I get a dramatic cooling of the, um, a, of the air with the water, and if I'm close to 100% humidity, I should get condensation. But I don't see anything special happening, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing However, similar. if I increase the number density of cloud condensation nuclei by taking a match, And then uh, extinguishing it when it's inside, I'll get the smoke. The Please. match is going into the bottle right now, giving off smoke inside of the bottle. And so the idea here is that the smoke from the match is particulate matter that's going to go into the bottle and is going to create nucleations. Okay, now I have smoke. Okay. And now what will happen is that uh, there will be many more particles on, over which I can uh, condense the, the water can condense. Okay? So he's squeezing the bottle now, I believe. 
Yeah, and so basically now when you squeeze the bottle, it, it becomes... becomes uh, it's transparent, yeah. opaque. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Transparent, opaque. Oh, that's so interesting. Transparent. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So as opaque. he squeezes the bottle... I'm, I, there is no cloud, cloud. No cloud, cloud. He is making the clouds by applying negative pressure to them, actually. And so what is the... What is the how does this tie back to the Earth mechanism? So it this is this is equivalent to the sheet tracks that you've seen before. Basically, it shows you that if you play with the number density of cloud condensation nuclei, you will change the uh, character of uh, the clouds. You see that we can form here clouds which are much whiter. But without in, the nucleating particles in the first place, you don't get anything. Mm -hmm. Again? Uh, when you didn't have the smoke particles in there in the first place, you didn't get the... Uh, exactly, about a few it. particles over which the water could uh, condense. Uh, at most, it could condense maybe on the on the walls of the chamber, but then uh, you wouldn't see it as, a, as an opaque cloud. And so you were saying that in your research lab, you were looking at multiple mechanisms that explained how this happened. And we got to the van der Waals interactions, which was the first mechanism. And so is that what's happening inside the bottle, or is that different? It, Okay, so uh, here I don't form the condensation nuclei. I, um, I just, um, I used smoke. Yeah. Uh, in nature, you need to grow those condensation nuclei. Um, and um, and uh, the easiest way is to um, nucleate sulfuric acid and water molecules and then let them grow. And what we found in the lab is that there are three mechanisms which play a role in increasing the number density of cloud condensation nuclei that you form by, uh, by this growth of uh, sulfuric acid, or nucleation and growth of sulfuric acid. And those were? Okay, so one is the fact that um, as you, um, a, if, if you have more charge, then the small aerosols are a, more stable. So it's easier to pass the... Um, okay, so what happens is that when you have a very small aerosol, a, a, there is a, a potential barrier formed because of, the, you can, because of the surface tension, the surface energy that the small aerosol has. But if it's charged, this potential barrier is much uh, lower and it's easier to pass this barrier. So the first mechanism uh, a, a, a allows charge to reduce this potential barrier and you nucleate more small aerosols. The two other mechanisms increase the uh, survival of those small aerosols between the production and up to uh, the up to the, si the, the size that they are large enough that they can serve as cloud condensation nuclei. The first mechanism is uh, of these two is that um, as aerosols grow, they need to uh, condense sulfuric acid molecules and other uh, stuff that you have. Like uh, at this point, you can also. A condense a nitric acid and the other a, a compounds with relatively low volatility. And um, a, these compounds, if they collect charge from the atmosphere, they'll polarize the small aerosol and they will condense faster. 
And therefore, if there's more charge around, the small aerosol will collect stuff faster from the surrounding, and it would be less likely to be eaten or scavenged by a pre-existing uh, aerosol, one that grew to its uh, size uh, previously. The second mechanism um, it, it operates... Okay, so this mechanism is important when the sulfuric acid density is low, so in relatively clean environments. The other mechanism operates in the opposite limits um, when you have a, a large uh, nucleation rate, uh, so large sulfuric acid densities and, and so forth. What happened is that because the aerosols are formed charged, the small aerosols are formed charged because charge uh, accelerates the nucleation rate, because the first mechanism. So the uh, aerosols are formed charged um, and they have to recombine. Now, if an aerosol recombines with a, a, a small cluster, a few molecules which have the charge, nothing will happen to the small aerosol. It will just grow by a little bit. On the other hand, um, if the small aerosol uh, recombines with a large aerosol that had charge on it, then uh, it would be uh, it would merge with the large aerosol and it's, it would be lost uh, by the system. You would uh, lose it as a, as a particle. Now, the counterintuitive thing is that the number density of large aerosols which have collected charge and can eat away the small aerosols is lower when the number density of charge in the atmosphere is higher. Sorry, when the ionization rate is higher. Now, the reason this is the case is because if you have more charge in the atmosphere, it recombines faster. It will have, uh, if you have more, if you found more positive and negative charge, and the density is higher, then the probability that a, a positive charge will find a negative charge is higher, and the recombination rate uh, decreases. Sorry, the recombination rate. Um, uh, sorry, it has to be the same as the ionization rate, but the lifetime. Uh, decreases. It's easier for, for charge to find another charge. And if the recombination time is faster, the probability that a large aerosol will collect charge is lower because it has less time to do so because the recombination is faster. Because the lifetime of the short, the lifetime of the large aerosols in a charged environment is shorter because they're breaking apart. The, uh, not the lifetime, the the probability, okay, if you, if you suppose you have a, a, a given number density of large aerosols, the fraction that would be charged is lower when the uh, ionization rate of the atmosphere is higher because the recombination time is shorter. So the large aerosol have, uh, they have a shorter uh, uh, um, it's harder for them. They have a shorter time to collect the small charge. It's a more it's, it's a more reactive. Yeah. It's just a more reactive right. it's a more reactive environment. So it's a more reactive environment, and everything takes place faster without the large aerosols having time to collect the charge. 
Mm. Um, so basically what happens is that um, uh, uh, if you have a, a more charged environment, the small aerosol which was formed charged has a higher probability of recombining with a, a charged cluster than recombining with a large aerosol. So it has a larger probability of surviving the first recombination. And um, we, we can calculate it uh, just like the first mechanism, we can calculate it from first principles and we can go to the lab and see the mechanisms, uh, both mechanisms, we can see them uh, operating. And so, the, so we the... know how to uh, calculate them, predict uh, what they're going to do, go to the lab and see them, uh, the mechanisms straight taking place. I mean, that's that's basically a gold standard of any scientific theory. Where with the with the large aerosols, you, it it sounds like you're saying that they're not charged. Is that correct? They're partially charged. They um, uh, they um, uh, I mean, they collect charge from the small aerosols. Uh, okay, basically, in the atmosphere. What happened is that you have a cascade. Of, uh, okay, so they have a cosmic ray particle. It, um, uh, it, it um, kicks an electron from, uh, from uh, nitrogen or oxygen or something like that. And then um, this electron uh, will cascade from species which are more common and less have less affinity to the charge to species which are less common and have more affinity to the charge. So if you have, for example, the electron uh, would uh, most likely first uh, collect on an O2 molecule. But if the O2 molecule uh, collides with uh, an ozone molecule, the ozone has a larger affinity and it will steal the electron. And then uh, there are molecules with a larger affinity. So if, if this uh, ozone would uh, collide with the uh, a nitric acid molecule, then the nitric acid will uh, will uh, steal the um, the charge, and um, a, a, the species with the largest affinity in the atmosphere is uh, sulfuric acid, but it's very uh, its density is very low. So you have this cascade, um, and the aerosols. A, you can look at the aerosols, the large aerosols, as a species with an even larger affinity, because if it will collide with the sulfuric acid, it will collect the sulfuric acid and also the charge. So it's basically the dumping ground of the charge in the atmosphere, and uh, but it will only survive a given uh, duration of uh, hundreds of seconds at, at sea level until it recombines with a positive charge, and, uh, and that, that would be it. But the probability that the small air, that the large aerosols would be charged, uh, namely the fraction of them that is going to be charged, depends on how long you have for this cascade to take place from the from the um, a, a common species with lower affinity to the to the less common species with a higher affinity. So if you have a higher charge, uh, so you have a higher um, ionization rate the recombination is faster and you have less time for this cascade to take uh, place. 
Um, and therefore, less of the, small, of the large aerosols are charged at any given time. I think, I mean, I, I think I follow at this point. And so it's... There should be one more mechanism as well. Oh. Or these are the first two, right? No, so these are, I, I mentioned three mechanisms. If uh, Let me count again. So it was more charged... The first one yeah, go ahead. increases the nucleation by reducing the uh, potential barrier for small aerosols. So uh, the small clusters can... Uh, can collect sulfuric acids, and then when they recombine, they're large enough and they're stable. The two additional mechanisms, mechanism two and mechanism three, <laughs> uh, increase the survival of the small aerosols. The first one, sorry, the second mechanism. Um, That's the one, more uh, polarization. It's more polarization, so you collect... Uh, because of Van der Waals forces, you basically grow faster and you have a smaller chance of being eaten by a large aerosol. So basically, you need a larger number density of large aerosols to quench the mechanism and stop the growth of small aerosols. The third mechanism um, is the fact that aerosols which are formed charged, which is most of them, a uh, are more likely to survive the, the first recombination mm. if the number dense, if the ionization rate in the atmosphere is higher because it would mean that you have a smaller amount of charge on the large aerosols. So the small aerosol has a smaller probability of recombining with the large aerosol and being lost. And what this leads us to is then the question of climate change and cosmic rays, right? Because this is what this work is in service of. Exactly. So uh, basically, it means that if you have more charge in the atmosphere, you produce more cloud condensation nuclei. This would then imply that the clouds are whiter or they live longer uh, you have an Earth with, with a higher albedo, you reflect more of the sunlight, and therefore you cool the Earth. Now, the typical variations that um, you have because of um, solar activity variations, like you, when, when the sun changes its activity, uh, it translates to... Um, stronger or weaker uh, solar winds. And when the solar, okay, so when you have a more active sun and it has a stronger solar wind, uh, the cosmic rays lose more energy as they propagate through the solar system from the outer reaches up to where they're, or down to, however you look at it, from the outer reaches uh, into where Earth is. Um, and therefore you get less ionization in the atmosphere. Okay, so more active sun, stronger solar wind, less cosmic rays penetrating the solar system, less cosmic rays reaching the Earth, less ionization in the atmosphere, less cloud condensation nuclei, clouds which are less white, so they reflect less of the sunlight, so it's warmer on Earth. Got it. So why is the sun being affected by its position in the galaxy? Is, is that... Okay, so... The sun isn't affected by the position in the galaxy. This is another, this is, okay, so uh, the solar variations 
are uh, modulations by the sun of the cosmic ray flux, but the environment around the solar system has a different uh, cosmic ray density to begin with, depending on our location in the galaxy. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so um, when you have more... Um, when you have more uh, cloud, uh, sorry, when you have a, 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 more formation of uh, supernovae in our vicinity, uh, sorry, more star formation in our vicinity, um, the stars which are uh, massive enough, they are more massive than say around 10 times the mass of the sun, uh, they live a relatively short life of uh, several tens of millions of years at most. And when they die, they die... Uh, in supernovae, and they accelerate the cosmic ray flux. Mm -hmm. So if the environment has more star formation, because uh, and, and the spiral arms have more star formation, you would get more production of cosmic rays, which would translate into a higher flux of cosmic rays reaching the Earth, and therefore a colder climate. Now, the modulation, uh, solar activity modulation of the cosmic ray flux is a 10, 20% variation on the 10 GV particles, which are needed uh, for their secondaries to propagate or penetrate the whole of the atmosphere and produce ionization at a few kilometers. Okay, so cosmic rays come from a typical energy of one GV, but it's only at the energy of maybe 10 GV that uh, they dominate the ionization in the lower part of the atmosphere. And at those energies, Solar modulation is of order 10% or 20% of their, uh, of their uh, flux. Uh, incidentally, if you change the Earth magnetic field, if you uh, switch off Earth's magnetic field, you also get something like that, like a 20% effect in the cosmic ray flux. So if the sun has an effect on climate through cosmic ray flux variations, uh, uh, changes in Earth's magnetic field should also correspond to similar variations in the climate. The problem is that the magnetic field changes on time scales over which you have other changes in the climate because of, say, Milankovitch cycles. So it drowns. You it's very hard to see variations due to changes in Earth's magnetic field because on those time scales you have other effects which are more important. Like the tilt of the Earth and... Exactly, Milankovitch cycles, the tilt, the change of eccentricity, um, and the, the notation, the fact, okay, so, the, the, uh, sorry, the precession. You have the precession, the notation, and the change in the uh, ellipticity of the orbit. And, um, but changes in the uh, density of cosmic rays, you know, uh, because of our location in the galaxy, uh, is um, or oh, it gives you variations which are typically uh, of order a hundred percent. Okay, mm -hmm. so if the sun effect on the climate is of order one degree, then the variations in solar so in our galactic environment will translate to a ten degree variation in the climate. Uh -oh. mm. And this is this is huge. This is enough to. Uh, Take Earth from a situation when there are no ice age uh, or oh, no ice caps whatsoever, or to situations where you have uh, ice ages like like we have today. So let's talk about the timing of that. So and the cause of it too, right? Like, the, what is the movement? Well, the Earth is move moving 
or the Earth, the, the Earth and the Sun are moving around the galaxy. I think that the mechanism that Dr. Shaviv is proposing is a perpendicular motion to the plane of the galaxy. Is that correct? Okay. The, um, okay. So, uh, first of all, you can call me Neil. You shouldn't call me. <laughs> okay. Uh, the second thing is a, a the, okay. When I started working on it, I looked on long time scales um, and the 150 million year time scale that uh, you see, the 145 million year time scale that you see in the ice ages and in the meteorites corresponds to the um, passages through the galactic spiral arms. So this is motion within the uh, within the plane. These are like the big Ever. cycles, right? These are millions of years. 145 million the, years. But the ice caps are, are on thousands of years, right? Yeah, so it's not Milankovitch. Milankovitch is a thousand times uh, faster. I see. So you're still saying that the Milankovitch cycles are predominantly responsible for the ice cap formation. Probably. <laughs> Uh, there are problems with Milankovitch. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't understand how relatively small changes in the redistribution of the energy on Earth can produce such large effects. Um, so with this caveat, uh, I mean, there is this caveat, but it's still the best explanation for what's happening on that timescale. As I recall, they also, the predictions are like not quite they're not quite the hundred thousand year cycle that we expect, or or is it? They're they're either okay. So okay. So th th there is a, over the past say million years, the dominant periodicity is that of the hundred thousand years, which is the changes in the eccentricity. And this is um, a, an open question. It's a it's it's a it's a riddle. How come this is the dominant effect? while the changes in the uh, uh, energy distribution uh, of the component because of the notation, the 40 million years and the precession, uh, should be larger and more dominant. So people don't understand why, or they would expect the shorter timescales to be more dominant, but the dominant timescales is instead the 100,000 years, which is the changes in the eccentricity. So there are still uh, open questions there. Uh, it's not... Uh, uh, it's not a fully understood uh, theory, but again, it's the best explanation you have for what's taking place on those uh, short timescales. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that we came across that's really strange too is that it appears like the ice caps were centered over Greenland, not necessarily this cooling straight down from the poles like you would expect if the whole place just got colder all of a sudden. Uh, what do you mean? Like, um, well, like Siberia was I mean, quite temperate during the last ice age. I think it's easier to produce ice uh, on uh, land uh, than it is over the over the Arctic Ocean. So, yeah, but like Siberia, sure Siberia was quite temperate uh, during the last glaciation, which is quite strange. Like, if you look at where the ice caps were centered based on the impressions they leave in the Earth, they really seem to be centered over Greenland around the globe, which is very strange. Like there's a... Yeah. Like it seems like there... So it, it appears that there was a true polar wander effect. For the, well, at well least I don't know if the, we can say that, but but it seems like the cap the was in the wrong place. Yeah? yeah. Uh, there was a paper in 18 published about the true polar wander leading to the Ice Ages. Hmm. Yeah. Who's that? It doesn't matter. It's fine. It's fine. But the, the point so is, I, is I, that I there's know, like other the, weird the, stuff I mean, that's going on. I, I'm not an expert on this. And uh, so I, I, I don't have any... 
presumptions that you know I can. I mean, I don't know. That's fine. Well, yeah, well, we'll send you the paper after we get off. It's actually it's it's quite interesting. It kind of ties into, but it's it's also for just the last ice age, right? Of course, not for not for farther back. Things get weird. When you go further back. So the charge situation is somehow um, modulating this effect. Is is that the hypothesis that? Yeah. So we, it's like you, you, the, your whole background is moving up and down, um, and when uh, it's hotter, then it's harder to form the uh, ice caps to begin with. Now. Uh, the interesting thing is that, um, okay, so I I first started working on it around 2001. Uh, so this is when I reconstructed the, 2002 maybe. And I was a postdoc at uh, the University of Toronto. And um, I, 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 I learned that, uh, how you can uh, reconstruct the cosmic ray flux using meteorites and so forth. And then I joined forces with a geologist who actually could reconstruct the temperature. Okay, so until then, I had a, I compared to qualitative reconstructions of the climate, whether you had evidence for glaciations or you had evidence for things like uh, evaporites, like when it was very warm and you would uh, uh, have a, a evaporation of a lot of evaporation of large bodies of water. Uh, but at some point, I joined forces with a geologist who uh, uh, reconstructed the temperature uh, geochemically. He looked at uh, oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 isotopes in uh, various fossils in Brachypods. And uh, uh, what he found, I mean, he saw this very clear 140 whatever million year cycle and uh, when he first published it he said look it doesn't look anything like the co2 reconstruction because one looked like this and the other one looked like this um, so people told him your reconstruction is wrong because obviously the co2 must have a large effect on climate but when he had this uh, paper this is a a his name is Jan Weiser. It's, uh, so he had this paper in Nature. And uh, when I saw it published, it was um, around that time, uh, I emailed him and I told him, look, uh, your reconstruction doesn't look anything like the CO2, but it, it looks exactly like the reconstruction of, uh, of uh, the cosmic ray flux using iron meteorites. And, uh, and then we realized that uh, we can, you know, we can compare his reconstruction to uh, CO2 and the cosmic ray flux, and we could place an upper limit on the effect of, uh, of CO2 on the temperature. And at that point, we became a persona non grata in the climate community because uh, people didn't like what we had to say. Because uh, you were saying that CO2 wasn't the necessarily the primary motivator here that that it wasn't it wasn't the, um, a, it wasn't the dominant uh, source so we, we could place an upper limit and this upper limit is roughly a one and a half degree increase per co2 doubling um, and this you should compare to the the ipcc range is somewhere between one and a half and four and a half degrees okay this was set by a federal committee that convened in 1979. There was a Chani committee, and they said, we think CO2 uh, 
affects the climate and the sensitivity is one and a half to four and a half degrees per CO2 doubling. So that was uh, set in 1979. And then in all the IPCC reports, they basically said uh, this is roughly the range. In the last two reports, it shifted a little bit up and down, but, uh, but this is the canonical range. So if this is the range, we just said that the, the lower limit is also the upper limit that you can get from uh, fitting the geological data. So people didn't like it. I mean, I think that the the motivation for not liking it comes down to the social impact, right? Like we've talked to a lot of people about this and the the universal thing that people are willing to agree to is that there is a need to take care of the planet and there is a need to be able to coalesce the movement to take care of the planet around some marker that we can take care of that we can take care of without significantly changing the material basis of civilization because the reality of it is is that the things that are most toxic to the planet are not co2 emissions they are all of the other myriad of industrial chemicals that are being produced but that's not a popular that, that's a much harder pill to swallow. I, I think you should do things for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. Uh, so you should do the right things hard to argue with. for the right reasons <laughs> and not the wrong things for the wrong reasons, or maybe the right things for the wrong reasons. Uh, because you can fool some of the people some of the time. You cannot fool all the people all the time. Abe uh, Lincoln. Yeah, and that's the... <laughs> did Abe Lincoln say that? I don't know. According to Bob Dylan, anyways. <laughs> I mean, and I think that that's... Uh, Abe Lincoln... Uh, um, sorry, there is this quote that says... You shouldn't believe uh, everything you read in the internet, Abe Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's like, and we come across this all the time, which is so frustrating because I think that there has been industrial capture of the climate movement to a complete degree where it's very, very easy for industry to buy indulgences for carbon dioxide. And so industry is very interested in carbon dioxide being the driver. Uh-huh. Because if you can say that it's carbon dioxide, well, we can build scrubbers and we can keep making your your trinkets and your widgets and you'll just keep buying stuff because it's not it's not any of the other things. It's just CO2 and we can fix that. Uh-huh. And, and it's really... And it really plays into people's hearts too, right? Because people want to have one thing that they can fixate on and really get after. And they want to believe that they're doing the right thing. And if carbon dioxide is the thing, well, then they can, they can, there's some metric that you can look at to say that this is greener than that. And because it's greener than that, you can kind of, you can put it into your soul, into this nice, neat place where you can just keep going. Yeah. I I, I think, I mean, it, um, it, it it became crazy. It's, you know, the U.S., for example, is divided on, uh, on political, uh, division, whether you're red or blue, I mean, this would uh, tell you whether, you know, which side you are on, the, on this on this debate, which is ridiculous. Um, I don't know. As a scientist, I try to do uh, a, the best science uh, I can, uh, even if some people that I would never vote for uh, like it. <laughs> and I mean, that's the that's the horrifying thing. Yeah, is that we run into that too. It's become a political question when really it's a question of what's happening. And that's so weird when it starts to enter into the realm of science because science isn't about the politics of who believes in the theory. It's about what's actually happening. And if you have the entire world fixated on something that's not actually going to fix the problem, then you're spending billions and billions of dollars of time and money and attention and you're getting 
something out of it that's not going to fix the problem. And while people are still, or not people, but industries are still dumping all sorts of other terrible things into our water tables and into our air that yeah. aren't really being accounted for in the discussion. Exactly. So what what is what has this research been like for you since you became a persona non grata? Well, in Israel, it's. Um, I think in Israel, I had uh, an easier time than my colleagues because, uh, unfortunately, we have real problems here to deal with. Um, I mean, they're quite different. That's for sure. Um, and I've been. Uh, my university has been very supportive. Like um, everyone likes me in the university. Uh, everyone knows me actually because I was uh, the head of the faculty union here, and I was. Uh, I was also the head of the. Uh, of all the faculty unions in Israel, and I had to negotiate with the Ministry of uh, uh, Finance a salary agreement at some point. And uh, it's very strange. I never thought I would head uh, a workers' union <laughs> when I grew up, but it's so it just happened. Um, so people know me and they like me, and I get support. And um, like um, a couple of months ago, uh, there was this organization of the uh, concerned parents or something like that uh, from, you know, uh, parents concerned of climate or something like that. And uh, they sent a, a, a letter to the head of my department, uh, the dean of the sciences and the uh, director of the, um, of the university. And how uh, how can they let me uh, how can they let me express my ideas, which are obviously so uh, you know counter uh, you know what the scientific community is saying or, or whatever? And uh, they were completely horrified. They said, uh, "You don't understand uh, how science works. Like uh, uh, scientists are supposed to be able to say, you know, all, uh, all, all the." Um, a, you know, the, they want certainty. They, they want certainty. Well, no, scientists are supposed. I mean, they do. The people want the certainty. Right. But w I think that what what Nir is trying to say is that the scientists should be able to say what they think is apparent without exactly. bowing to consensus. Of course, because the course. parents want to. They're the like, people, how dare you say this? Because the, the people want the consensus, right? They don't. This this uh, division within the ranks is very unsettling to someone on the outside who thinks that science is this this monolithic, monolithic uh, uh, thing of ideas, but it isn't. Right, mm. it's a living discipline uh, that's always updating its understanding of how things work, and that's one of the biggest dangers we fall into is when we're not able to move things forward because there's these tiny little corruptions in the way that we attain our information or distribute it. Uh, Michael Crichton, uh, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Crichton, the uh, author of uh, Jurassic Park and so forth, a good one. he said that um, if, it's, uh, if it's consensus, it's not science. Whoa, <laughs> that's radical. Yeah, I mean... I so I guess the the question that I have is given your research and given the inevitability of temperature increases because of galactic events that we can't control what do we do cuz a, a planet that's 10 degrees hotter Okay so uh, things are I mean it's not black or white mm -hmm. um things are uh, you know somewhere in the middle 
CO2 does have an effect on climate. Uh, part of the warming over the 20th century is because of CO2. Uh, part of it is because uh, the sun increase, increased its uh, activity over the 20th century. Uh, but when you build, try to build a consistent picture of what has happened, you realize that, again, it's consistent with uh, climate sensitivity, which is not three or four degree increase for CO2 doubling, like what you hear in the, the, in the doomsday scenarios, but it's somewhere between one and one and a half degree increase for CO2 doubling. This means that under a business as usual scenario, the temperature is going to continue rising. It's going to continue uh, to rise over the 21st century. Uh, so it's not like we're not having an effect. We have an effect. It's not huge. Uh, it shouldn't cause us a, a, to think that uh, um, we're at the... Um, a, a, you know the the uh, the end of civilization or or something like that, a, but I think in any, any case we are going to switch to alternative energy sources. You know, just because at some point we want to uh, to save money. A, I think now what's happening with the, in Europe with the with the Russian gas and so forth. A, uh, winter is coming. Uh, they're going to have a cold winter in Germany, and I think that they're going to uh, to move back to uh, nuclear uh, power. Nowadays, you can design nuclear reactors, which are amazing. That you can uh, uh, treat the waste so that you don't have things with uh, you know ten thousand year uh, lifetime, uh, but only hundred years, so you can uh, you can. Uh, take care of the waste, the things which are extremely stable, that uh, you don't need anything active to uh, ensure that you don't get uh, Fukushima or something like that. Um, these are the thorium so systems? What? Are these the thorium systems? You have uh, thorium, you have... Okay, so uh, first thing is that uh, don't use uh, uh, water, use uh, salt or metal. And that's because... Um, to quench the reaction, this is... Uh, yeah. It's a atmospheric pressure, so nothing can blow up. Uh, so I, I saw, for example, this design by a German-Canadian uh, company um, where they have uh, two fluids. Um, one is a fluid that uh, uh, cools the reactor and you get all the energy out of it. And the other one is the fluid with all the... Um, uh, the a fissile material, so it passes through the reactor, which is the moderator, which co uh, cools down the neutrons and you get the reaction. And then underneath the reactor, you have a, a, you have a, a, something like a, a metal plug, which melts if the temperature rises above, you know, a thousand and whatever degrees, and then everything flushes down into containers. So if something happens, um, yeah, uh, automatically all the fissile material uh, is flushes out and you don't have anything taking place. It's like a foolproof, totally passive um, a way to avoid any, uh, any runaway or anything like uh, what you had, uh, for example, in Fukushima. Mm. So nuclear uh, so is already by far the safest, uh, I mean, in terms of the amount of health damage that comes from production of electricity, it seems like nuclear is already way ahead of everyone, and this is just increasing it even do, further. Do you, do you know, 
I studied this, uh, this, uh, this paper, it has this uh, statistics. Um, the number of people who died per gigawatt hour of electricity in, from nuclear power, including Chernobyl, which wasn't really an accident, it was an experiment that uh, went wrong, uh, with uh, um, a generation of, uh, of extremely unstable uh, uh, power plants, like uh, uh, graphite-based uh, power plants are very unstable. So uh, even if you include that, the number of people who died per gigawatt hour is four times smaller than the number of people who die from rooftop photovoltaic cells. Because people <laughs> fall down from roofs when they install the photovoltaic cell. <laughs> yeah, but people are just so allergic to the idea of nuclear. I mean, the, the bombs and the war and all of this and the huge disasters making the news, they, they really just yeah, capture people's hearts. The number of people who died in Fukushima from uh, from the uh, uh, from nuclear uh, sorry from uh, radiation, you don't know exactly, but statistically it should be of order a few. Uh, the number of people who died, uh, I mean, definitely much less than, for example, the number of people who died from the evacuation itself. The number of people who died from the tsunami that caused everything is something like, I don't know, what's 20,000 people? But people, you don't see people leaving coastlines because they said, oh, I'm afraid that the tsunami would uh, would drown me. Okay, but uh, so just pe people are, you know, they just, they don't weigh things uh, properly. It is so interesting. And how do you think that we could sell that idea to people better? Is there a way of just of getting people to understand the safety differences because people don't react well to numbers. Like putting numbers in front of people doesn't seem to do it. There's something emotional about the the word nuclear that just, you know, freaks people out. You know, they change, for example, uh, uh, MRIs, uh, magnetic resonance, uh, resonance imaging, was originally called uh, NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance. <laughs> Uh, but they just changed the name so that there won't be nuclear in it, so that people won't be afraid from it. <laughs> but there's nothing to be afraid from it. That's smart. Uh, I think we need to do that with nuclear power, probably. Oops, I mean, exactly. I don't know. It's a lot of education. Like you have to do. We have to educate. Um, I don't know. Like uh, how come France has seventy uh, percent of the uh, electricity comes from nuclear power, and they, you know they're totally fine with it. I think that it has to do with the way that it's packaged and sold to people. Like we we live in a time where we have more information than ever before, but I don't think that that leads to people spending more time researching for themselves. What they do is they listen to what the culture tells them is good or bad. And you align with some I kind think of... Also, I mean, it's not the, necessarily the age of information, it's the age of uh, disinformation. It's like we get so much... Uh, all the scary stuff is totally amplified. Like uh, a, nobody would write a, a, an, uh, an article or post a post in Facebook, uh, nothing happened today, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's a lot of industrial incentives there to keep the energy production the way that it is, right? There's a lot of infrastructure, capital infrastructure that's already in place for fossil fuels, uh, you know, biochar, everything else. I think that... Yeah, but 
So, so in in, um, in in China, for example, they're developing a, a thorium uh, a, a nuclear reactors based on uh, with molten salts. And the reason it's very they're, they're very interested in it is because, because exactly because of this problem. Uh, because uh, with molten salt, you don't need a, a, a concrete dome uh, to guard against explosion or anything like that. The reactor itself is very small. So once you have those reactors, you can just take the coal burning uh, uh, furnace from a, a, a regular uh, coal power plant, remove it, put instead the uh, thorium-based uh, coal, and that's it. And you have a, a power plant producing uh, electricity from nuclear power. It's a lot mm. cheaper, though. Right. And so I, I think that and, and what Shiloh is trying to say is that when you have an industry like the oil and gas industry that is that is producing a fuel that is not as energy dense as nuclear, it's a more scarce resource. And so you're able to charge more money for it. If you have nuclear energy, it's much cheaper and the industry doesn't make as many profits. And fundamentally, we live in a world that's driven by profits rather than um, I'm not sure because it works only for a short while because, uh, I mean, if you have a competitor that would say, aha, I can produce electricity for half the price, I'll build this, I'll build this uh, power plant. Um, I'm not sure it's that easy. Like when I was in grad, it's not easy. When I was in grad in school, West, we, we were right in the West. It's so expensive that nuclear power is not cheaper than coal. It's also very, very difficult to edge into the power sector with a new technology. Like my my grad school lab, we were working on evaporation harvesting technologies that we could actually deliver with no intermittency that was the same uh, power output as solar panels but nobody none of, like it was extremely difficult politically to elbow into the industry like nobody was really uh, the conversation was not tolerated in a sense it was much more difficult than we imagined we were like oh we have this great idea everybody's gonna love it and it was like you can't even nope, get to the table <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, these are these are these are large problems that I think because I don't think that the world is ending and I don't think that humans are going to go extinct. I, I think we have some runway to solve them, despite what people might think. It, it's like it's millennial panics about the end of the world are are pretty fundamental. And so well, people have been thinking the end of the world is coming forever. So. Yeah, and even in my most doomer moments, I have to reassure myself that like it's going to be okay. So we didn't yeah. even get to talk about your really cool work in astrophysics too, because I was hoping that we could we could talk a bit about how the sun works. But uh, I actually even I didn't even answer uh, your question about the vertical motion because uh, we 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 can see that geologically as well. It's, and and what's it, the effect of that? Yeah, if you have time, I'd love to hear about it. So in short, um, when I joined uh, forces with this. Uh, a geologist, a, a, few, a couple of years later, he had better and better data. And in addition to this 140 million year oscillation, uh, you could also see a 32 million year oscillation in the data uh, over, say, the past 150 million years where we had good enough data. And uh, this looked awfully suspicious as being the um, the vertical motion, like the motion of the solar system perpendicular to the galactic plane. 
But uh, there were two things which didn't add up. One is that uh, standard models for cosmic ray diffusion in the galaxy required that the region over which the cosmic rays diffuse is relatively large of order a, a, um, a several thousand light years. Um, and then this means that the oscillation that the sun has um, in a perpendicular direction, which um, the, um, the, P, the amplitude is uh, 300 light years, is not enough to uh, see a large variation in the cosmic ray flux density. Okay, you'll have some kind of a, maybe a second order a, a density distribution. And if you're moving up and down, you'll be right at this peak and you won't see any large variations. So that was one problem. And the other problem was that um, at that point, there were a, estimates for what the density of the galactic plane is based on looking at the kinematic of stars moving uh, in a perpendicular direction. Uh, basically, if you, if you plot um, like a phase space of, uh, say, the, the velocity of the stars versus, uh, versus uh, uh, the distance from the galactic plane, they would be, uh, I mean, you, you'll have this two-dimensional plane and, and you'll have this, uh, this, this, this distribution of stars and um, if the, if the uh, density is higher, you would expect uh, the velocities to be larger uh, for, the same, uh, for the same vertical uh, uh, distance. Now, uh, so that was in 2004 already. Uh, we had this paper and uh, eventually it didn't get published because uh, I, I didn't feel easy because of these two problems. So we put it aside, and then in 2011, uh, he sent me his updated data, and in the updated data, you could see uh, 15 oscillations of the 32 million years. It's like extremely clear that you see this, uh, this temperature variations. It's like an 11 sigma signal. Oh. You don't get things like that... Uh, brushed under the carpet easily. Now, um, at that point, uh, I had a PhD student who um, did the modeling of the uh, cosmic ray flux diffusion. And it turns out that if you uh, assume that the sources are not distributed equally in the galactic plane, but they are concentrated in the spiral arms, as we know they are, then uh, you cannot allow the cosmic rays to diffuse to a distance of several thousand light years. It has to be only a few hundred. And this has to do, uh, when you look at the production of, uh, of beryllium-10 and boron in, by the cosmic rays, I won't get into it because it's another discussion. Uh, but the thing is that uh, in order to if you assume a model where the sources are in the spiral arms and not in the galactic plane, uh, uh, homogeneous, then the, um, uh, in order to fit the same cosmogenic data, you need a halo which is much smaller, which is actually what you would expect from the interstellar medium because the interstellar medium has this turbulent uh, uh, gas only within uh, a few hundred light years. Um, so that was one problem. And then I looked again at the 
dynamics of the, of the, of the stars and, and the estimate for what the density is. And um, I realized that there is a systematic bias which wasn't uh, considered. Basically what happened is that when the spiral, the shocks in the, of the spiral arms pass a distribution of stars, they would cause the stars to uh, oscillate, to ring. Okay, so the whole distribution would be oscillating, uh, would puff up and uh, squish periodically. And what would happen is that you would bias the measurements that you estimate for the density of uh, at the galactic plane. So you might think that the density is low and the period should be around 40 million years, while in fact the density is higher and the period uh, should be lower, like 32 million years, which is what we have seen. So I realized that the, the two biggest constraints that we had a few years earlier um, weren't real. And then I looked again at the uh, 32 million year oscillation, and it turns out that the 32 million year oscillation, the period of the 32 million years is not constant. Um, sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter. There is a 180 million year oscillation of, in the period of the 32 million year oscillation. And it turns out that this has the right period and the right phase to be the radial epicyclic motion of the solar system in the galactic, when we're uh, orbiting the galaxy. Um, we're not orbiting in a, in a circle, uh, but instead we're uh, oscillating in and out. Now, uh, when you have all the mass concentrated uh, at the center, like you have in the solar system, then uh, all of the uh, uh, Kepler knew that the orbits are closed uh, ellipses. But if the density is smeared, then um, the radial oscillation is not the same as the orbital period. The orbital period is, is in this case, it's 250 million years, but we're moving in and out with a period of 180 million years. So the frequency modulation that you see, or the period modulation that you see in the 32 million year period uh, has the, the periodicity and the phase we expect from the radial motion. And when we're closer to the galactic center, we're oscillating faster. When we're further out, we're oscillating slower. The density is lower and we're oscillating uh, slower. Uh, are these just tidal effects? Are these just, are these just tidal effects from interactions with the other star systems? No, it's um, it's well, it's it's uh, it's not tidal. I mean, it is gravity. It's the fact that uh, you have um, a denser environment around you, or, or a lower, uh, or, or, or or a less dense environment. But so when you have more material, uh, you're just oscillating up and down faster. When you have less material, you're oscillating up and down slower. But the really cool thing is that you can see all our galactic motion in the geochemical records over the past half billion years. You can uh, reconstruct the motion. It's, uh, it's totally bizarre. I guess I'm just trying to understand why it's oscillating in the first place. Um, because, uh, because the density is mostly... Uh, you, you have like a concentration of material towards the galactic plane. If you, if you look at the star, which is just above the plane, for example, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't feel a force in this direction. It would feel a force which is mostly in this direction, mm. like this. 
So this component is responsible for its uh, orbital motion around the galaxy, but the fact that you have a strong component like this would imply that it's oscillating uh, up and down. Mm, it's like an overshoot. Here, so you're going to be uh, uh, pulled towards the galactic plane, you'll overshoot and you'll uh, find yourself on the other side and you will oscillate like this back mm, and forth. Mm, I got it. I got would it. you expect that oscillation to dampen over time? To damp? Yeah. Um... Uh, no, it actually the stars. Uh, there is no mechanism that can uh, that can take energy from this kinetic motion of the stars. So they are born at a at a galactic plane, and as they grow older, the stars, because of collisions with other stars or uh, molecular clouds or whatever, they're oscillating up and down faster and faster. So uh, stars which are just born, uh, they're very close to the galactic plane within maybe 10, 20, par uh, a few tens of light years. Uh, stars which are 4 billion years old typically have an amplitude of maybe uh, 500 light years. So the sun is uh, oscillating abnormally uh, with a low amplitude compared to other stars its age. Uh, but, you know, statistically, it's okay. No problem with that. Mm. Uh, and how does this fit into the cosmic ray flux? Like, it, the, you just this is just something else that you have to include in your model to be able to tell. Exactly. So, because most of the production of cosmic rays is at the galactic plane, and the region where cosmic rays can diffuse is relatively narrow, above and below which they just escape, you get a large uh, contrast between the density at the galactic plane and further uh, above and below the, the plane. And, and as a consequence, as we're oscillating uh, perpendicular to the plane, we're witnessing a changed uh, uh, variation in the cosmic wave flux, which translates into a changed uh, temperature. Mm. Now, the variations that you see in the temperature are typically maybe two degrees. So they're small compared to the passages to the galactic spiral arms, but um, a, you can still you know, recover it from uh, geological data. Mm -hmm. Something that I noticed from this paper that was published in 2003, which is the Celestial Driver of Phanerozoic Climate, is that the curves that you have for cosmic ray emission versus the changes in temperature, they're, they're, uh -huh. they're offset. And I think I've seen uh, okay, somewhere... Okay, so it's not offset. What happens is that uh, when you reconstruct the cosmic ray flux with uh, meteorites, you have a systematic error. Uh, you don't know the period, and you can, you, you can, you can play with the, with the exact period and uh, stretch things or condense things a little bit. Uh, you cannot play with the phase, but you can play with the period. And the graphs that you see there are basically the, or the, the, the oh, it's not the hatch, the, the uh, what color was it? Yellow? Yellowish. I think it's a yellowish color. Uh, it's basically the allowed region that you can play with the, with the period. And it seems, I mean, I'm, I'm looking, but just eyeballing, it seems like if you look at the peak of the temperature, then it's uh, a little bit offset from the peak of the galactic ray flux or the cosmic ray flux. Like it seems like if, if I'm looking at it, 
that the lowest point of cosmic ray flux is at the highest point of temperature. If I'm looking, at I don't know. I have to look, but uh, I think like if you look overall, the I mean, there are other things which affect the climate. It's like it shouldn't be necessarily a one to one. Um, when you do a fit, you find that the fit uh, is very good and uh, statistically very significant. And, and like you would expect we some hysteresis, right? Uh, last year, there was a paper which appeared just recently. Um, it's more of a review article. It appeared in uh, a. In the annals of the New York Academy of Science, um, I think like a month ago. Um, and uh, we redid the fit with the better data. And uh, you can see exactly, you know, how much is contributed by the CO2, by, uh, by uh, cosmic rays. Uh, there's another thing which is important, and that is that the, the sun uh, slowly increases its brightness. Like since it was uh, like since uh, from say uh, four billion years ago, it increased its luminosity by twenty five percent. So over the past five hundred million years, I mean it's it's a uh, it's still a meaningful uh, effect which uh, counters a, a large part, for example, of the effect of CO two. The fact that the CO2 has been decreasing over the past uh, 500 million years. A, a large part of it is countered by the fact that the solar luminosity increased. This is just by... You have to take everything into account and look at the whole picture. Mm. What? That's just its progression down the main sequence. This is just kind of standard uh, fare for a star like the sun. Yeah, what happened is that uh, the molecular weights of the center changes uh, because as it's uh, converting uh, hydrogen into helium, um, and when uh, the, the equilibrium of the star with a heavier uh, core is such that it burns uh, brighter. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, this is uh, this is this has been known for uh, probably from the seventies or sixties even. So yeah, you you have some really interesting research uh, that challenges the Eddington luminosity paradigm. Uh, I if you have time to talk about it today, that's fine. I'd also be we could come back and do an, another podcast down the road whenever you have more time as well. But I, I think that's really interesting too because we're always trying to understand how stars work better, and it seems like this is a new piece in the puzzle. So, um, okay, so there is this thing called the Eddington luminosity, which is uh, the luminosity for which uh, the radiation pressure would equal the gravitational pull. Um, if you look at the sun, for example, uh, uh, so if you look at a parcel of gas at the outer layers of the sun, it feels both a gravitational pull towards uh, the sun, the, cent the center of the sun, but it also feels the force by the uh, by the photon field. The fact that you have a large flux, uh, it feels a force uh, outwards. In the sun, this force is ten thousand times uh, smaller than the gravitational pull. So the outer layers of the sun are totally fine with it, and it's you know they have no, they, um, you can have a hydrostatic equilibrium. If you look at the star, which is a uh, hundred times more massive than the sun, it would burn uh, on the main sequence when it, when it burns hydrogen. It would burn 
uh, a million times brighter. So a star like that would have a radiation field uh, exerting a force which uh, is comparable to the gravitational pull. And if the velocity exceeds uh, this, uh, this uh, threshold, this uh, Eddington luminosity limit, the force outwards should be larger than the gravitational pull. And uh, you shouldn't be able to have any hydrostatic equilibrium and the, the thing should break apart on a dynamical uh, time scale. So um, it turns out that nature uh, doesn't know about this limit. They didn't read the scientific literature. And nature knows how to produce objects which are shining above the Eddington uh, luminosity for uh, durations which are uh, much larger uh, than what you would expect. Now, uh, so that was, I mean, this is something I started working when I was uh, in my first postdoc when I was at Caltech uh, in the 1997 or something like that. Um, and uh, what I realized is that in principle, if you had instabilities which uh, grow and make the atmosphere uh, inhomogeneous, like, um, like, you know, Swiss cheese or something, what would happen is that the radiation would be able to escape through regions which have less gas, which are uh, more transparent. And the average force that the radiation would uh, exert on the gas would be reduced. So in principle, you could surpass the Eddington luminosity without, on average, uh, leaving as much uh, uh, force on the material, and, and the material could be uh, in hydrostatic equilibrium, on average. Um, so what I found out later are two things. First is that there are these instabilities. As you approach the Eddington luminosity, uh, you have a plethora of instabilities which take place and which make the atmosphere uh, inhomogeneous. So as you approach the Eddington, you always get uh, this uh, porous atmosphere. And the second thing is that uh, I understood what the systems are going to look like. And this is uh, that basically what happens is that as you go up the atmosphere and you see regions which are less and less uh, opaque, uh, at some point, the structure, this uh, post, uh, this post structure that you have will become optically thin. Um, if the blobs are, are, are opaque, the radiation can panel around it. But if you move high enough in the atmosphere where the structure becomes uh, transparent, the radiation doesn't see the structure and you lose this uh, anti-correlation between radiation and uh, density and matter and you're back at the, um, at the um, a homogeneous, on average, the homogeneous case. So I, I realized that um, what would happen is that you would, you would get a wind from the region where the atmosphere is sufficiently transparent and I could predict what this uh, mass loss should be. Um, and this mass loss uh, was consistent with, uh, with what uh, was seen ejected in, 
Eta Carina. Eta Carina is a star which 150 million years, million, 150 years ago, no million, uh, became the second uh, brightest star in the sky. Uh, it's a hundred or 150 solar mass uh, star, which is uh, unstable. But uh, for a period, it became uh, sufficiently, uh, it became brighter. And then it ejected this uh, nebula, which you can see today. Uh, it's called the homunculus nebula. It looks like an hourglass. Um, and so we can estimate the density, the, the total matter that you have, the amount of matter that you have in this uh, nebula and compare it to what uh, we expect from uh, the star uh, when it was super Eddington during this uh, 20 years and see that it's consistent. There are other systems which uh, uh, which become super Eddington and you can uh, and you can uh, estimate what the mass loss rate is and, and compare it to the theory and, and see that it works but the neatest thing is that um, somewhere around uh, 2010 uh, I talked to um, a colleague a friend of mine an astronomer uh, here in Israel who Um, and uh, he uh, is a member or was a member of the of the project which was then running in Mount Palomar called the uh, Palomar Transient Factory. Basically, what they do is they uh, take a picture of the same patch of the sky every night, such that when there is something interesting, You can go back in time and see whether there was something there because everything is recorded. So this way they find um, a lot of interesting transients like supernovae, like uh, today other transients include uh, tidal disruption events. Uh, uh, so novi, supernovae, tidal disruption events, uh, and, and whatever, a lot of things. So I told him um, there is a particular type of uh, supernova called type 2n which is supernovae uh, which is a co-collapse uh, supernovae so the it's a single massive stars which uh, have the co-collapse uh, because they reach the uh, they reach the burning of a Of iron which is the most stable uh, element and then there's nothing to uh, hold the pressure and then the core collapses and then you get from uh, when the density is high enough uh, reaching nuclear nuclear density uh, it stops and you have a, a shock wave which propagates out and uh, expels the outer layers at these, these high velocities but the end of In the 2n is the fact that you see narrow lines in the uh, spectra of those objects. Basically, what happened is that these uh, envelopes collide with previously ejected uh, material that um, is around the star uh, when the star exploded. Now the typical densities and uh, or typical uh, mass loss rates that you need in order to get this uh, this uh, 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 narrow lines that you see in those uh, supernovae are, are relatively high and this is the type of mass losses that you get when the star is super Eddington. 
So I told this uh, friend of mine, uh, look for type 2 and supernovae, which are uh, close enough such that uh, if the progenitor was super Eddington before that, you would be able to detect it. And um, a, a, and you would see that um, they had a super Eddington episode which ejected uh, this material. And I had a prediction for uh, there should be a, a clear relation between the integrated amount of light emitted uh, during the super Eddington episode and the uh, and the amount of mass that you can uh, that you can uh, infer from the supernova itself, the amount of circumstellar uh, uh, material that you had there before. Uh, and several months later, I get this email. Uh, you were right. And uh, so they discovered uh, a, a supernova progenitor. So it was the first time that the supernova progenitor was discovered um, through a systematic search, which is looking for something specific, because there were uh, serendipitous uh, discoveries uh, of, of progenitors before, but it was the first time that uh, progenitor was discovered from a direct, uh, from a, a particular search, which was looking for something specific. Um, and since then, uh, many more were discovered. And statistically, basically, all these supernovae, uh, the narrow emission lines is from uh, circumstellar material, which was ejected in this uh, super Eddington episode that uh, they have in a few years before they explode. I have a really basic question that I wanted to ask you about the photon pressure in general, because the idea as I understand it, is that there's this long tangling web of photons that are emitted uh, deep in the star and they take a million plus years to work their way out. And this is how we explain the continuous spectrum of these bodies because it they, they actually behave as beautiful black bodies and you get this spectrum. And, and when I think about light, I think about an atom over here and an atom over here that are undergoing some exchange. Uh, but what does light mean when it's, when the atoms are packed so densely together that they're in contact? Like, how do you have light at all? Like, is that, do you, do you see what I'm saying? How do you, how do you, they, they just, you know, the, the, the atom, well, they're not atoms. They're usually uh, nuclear and electrons. They just uh, emit and absorb photons all the time. The mean free path of the photon is relatively small. Extremely uh, small, right? Um, not extremely small. Mm. Um, it's much larger than the than the than the separation between the uh, the nuclei. It's much larger. So they're going to a different atom or a different nuclear nuclear. Yeah, you have this gas, and you know a photon is emitted here, and then it's absorbed here. So it's tunneling, or it's just not hitting anybody. No, it's not on the tunneling. Way. It's like um, um, there's it's, space. Uh, there's space in between. These. I mean, look, look the the density at the um, at the uh, center of the sun is about a hundred grams per cubic centimeter. Uh, so it's it's like a very dense, uh, some, much much dense, well, ten times denser, oh, of order ten times denser than the, the densest things we have here on Earth, which are metals usually. 
uh, yeah, but still, you can, you can have, you know, a, a, a photon emitted and then absorbed somewhere else. Um, Do you see this within metals on Earth as well? I think what happened is that um, uh, on Earth, um, the, uh, the in, in metals, electrons can propagate a relatively large distance uh, before uh, uh, colliding with something. And uh, that's why metals have most of their uh, heat transfer uh, and electricity and conductivity uh, are through electrons. Uh, but uh, so I, I mean, it basically depends on the temperature because uh, at uh, 300 Kelvin, the number, the flux that you get from radiation is relatively weak. So it's easier to uh, advect the energy by other means. For example, uh, heat the air next to it, and then you have, you know, convection or through uh, conduction that uh, the electrons collide with the other electrons and they, you know, propagate the energy this way. But when the temperature is uh, much higher, uh, even though the mean free path is very small, you still emit so many photons that uh, uh, you can carry with them uh, most of the energy. Um, so during, uh, sorry, so over most of the sun, okay, over the inner 60% uh, of the radius of the sun, which is 98% of the mass, Almost all the energy transfer is through radiation. You emit photons and absorb them. Uh, the outer 40% in radia, radius uh, is convective. Uh, a, the opacity is too high. It's very hard to do it with radiation. And you get that the uh, temperature uh, a gradient is sufficiently large that it's unstable uh, for the process of convection. Uh, you know, on Earth, if the temperature uh, decrease with height is more than uh, one degree Celsius per 100 meters, I have no idea what it is in the, in, in the English system. Uh, oh, is it 100 then meters? The or atmosphere is unstable. Meters? You get say, that uh, hot parcels rise and cold parcels uh, fall, and you mix it. Uh, inside clouds is actually smaller, so you can get inside clouds, uh, you more easily get uh, convection. Uh, but in the sun, it happens in the 40%, uh, percent, the outer 40% in the radius. And you can actually see that if you look at a picture uh, of the sun at high resolution, you can see the, it's called granules. You can see the convective cells close to the surface. It looks like, uh, like, uh, like an orange soup. It's like bubbling. Almost. Like uh, like soup, it looks like uh, uh, a tasty. Uh, a it looks very liquid for sure. Pumpkin soup or something. Um, now uh, in uh, in neutron stars, so in, in neutron stars and in uh, white dwarfs, because of the high density on one hand, but and because you have the free electrons that can propagate, uh, most of the heat loss through most of the volume is like metals on Earth. It's like by the uh, 
uh, is by conduction uh, on electrons. I see, I see. So different processes occurring. Um, yeah, I just, I yeah, guess I wasn't... The reason I like astrophysics so much is because it has like all the different disciplines of physics. So uh, it's not a basic science, but, you know, it's... it's uh, It's very multidisciplinary, both in physics and also like you know the things I've done, like with geologists or whatever it's uh... yeah, and one of the the trickiest things about astrophysics is that we can't really do experiments where we make little suns on earth, and it's 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 an indirect methodology inherently. It's not like biology where we can just make some cells and poke at them on earth. We have to infer everything, and so. As we update our assumptions about one inference, it can change the way things are understood uh-huh. in, a, in a different domain. And I think that's... But, but that's nice that you don't have uh, measurements to destroy your beautiful theory. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have kind of a stupid question. So when, when I think about photon emission on Earth conditions, I think of the outer surface of the atom as being responsible for the thing that's being emitted. Like it's not a nuclear phenomenon; it's it's a surface phenomenon. Is that correct? It's a um, it's an atomic process. It's um, a, an electron changes its state and it emits the uh, photon. So it's the electron. It's the it's the change in the the vibrational frequency of the electron that's responsible for the emission of the photon. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it changes its uh, energy level or something like that. And so, in- but also also in the sun, it's mostly the electrons because. They're much lighter than the protons, the nuclei. Then most of the photons interact with the plasma by interaction with the electrons. Uh, they can be free electrons, or they can be electrons. Like if you have a, if if you look further inside the sun, a, the, all the outer electrons are going to be ionized away because the temperature is high. But if you look uh, deep enough, you, you'll have, uh, for example, um, uh, iron uh, atoms or iron nuclei, which are ionized 10 times. And what's doing the emission uh, or the interaction would be electrons which in the very inner uh, states, which are still bound. Just, it seems so close to what's happening in metals. It's just, it's fascinating to me. Because they're so like pared down? Yeah, well, light is inherently uh, an electron process as well. And uh, yeah, I guess the difference is just that there is a mean free path available, whereas in a, a metal, you're saying that there, this, the shells are in contact and so conductivity takes over, whereas in the sun, there's more chaos from the heat. And um, I think what happens is at higher temperatures is that the um, intrinsic... Uh, emission of uh, like if you look at the black body that you uh, emission that you would get uh, it increases like you know t to the fourth so um, the effectiveness with which you could affect uh, the energy with the uh, photons would increase uh, correspondingly um, so that's the, the weird thing about black why. bodies on earth is that we can't produce a continuous spectrum with black bo- with with gaseous or ionized material on Earth. Maybe you can actually help us trace this back. So we we did uh, a study, we did a little episode for one of our other channels about uh, Kirchhoff's law of thermal emission. Uh-huh. And something that we came across is that when you go back and you read Kirchhoff's 
manuscript about spectroscopy. He does he says specifically that gases aren't capable of emitting continuous spectra. But if you go to the Wikipedia article, that's the third point of Kirchhoff's laws of thermal emission that gases emit a continuous spectrum. And when I think about the physics of how a continuous spectrum is emitted, it makes sense that a solid object that condensed matter can produce a continuous waveform because what you have is the electrons are delocalized through the lattice of the material, and so you have all different wavelengths of electron motion through the material, and so you get a continuous spectrum. But in a gas, because they, the atoms aren't connected to one another in this way that can offer delocalization, you, you only get l discrete lines in a spectrum. And so I was wondering if you had come across primary literature that showed a gas is capable of producing a continuous spectrum, because I've never been able to trace back through all of our conversations with physicists where that presumption comes from. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, gases would, uh, if, if, if it's thick enough, uh, gases would produce um, a continuous uh, spectrum. But that's uh, just like a theoretical axiom of saying that stars are gas, so they must, and they have continuous spectrum, so therefore it must be possible. Mechanism. No, but the, the thing is that you always have, you have more processes which are uh, continuum processes which allow the thermalization uh, where you don't have uh, lines. But like a plasma uh, doesn't uh, produce a black body spectrum. Like plasmas have weird... If it's thin, if it's optically thin, um, if you have um, a neon light, then the neon in the neon light is is relatively thin, and you would get only the emission lines coming from the neon. Now, um, a, but if you had not a, a few centimeters of neon, but you had probably a... But like that, that's an untestable right. That's an untestable yeah. assumption. Is the well, the well, tricky thing about it, right? What, what was what was the condition that you said that it would be, and I didn't hear because it, it might be untestable. Uh, I'm trying to think exactly what would be. Um, if you had several grams per square centimeter, like um, of neon, uh, then uh, it would be thick enough that uh, you would get uh, continuum emission. Is that is that experimentally possible to do? Can you can you is it possible for somebody to set up that experiment? Because I've looked in the literature and I haven't been able to find this neat black body spectrum. And the reason this is interesting is that, and I'm going to open a can of worms right now, which is that if gases cannot, if the theory says that they can emit, but experimental attempts to get them to emit a black body spectrum fail then it calls into question something like the interpretation of the CMB. Because if the CMB is not what we is not a black body spectrum from the birth of the universe because well, from gas from, gaseous interactions. Yeah. Then it start it, there's this little like pebble th that sits at the basis of a lot of theories that doesn't hold physically. And no one as far as I can tell has been able to show that gases can produce a black body spectrum that is related linear like directly related to temperature. I've never seen that I've, I, I I mean I could be missing it. 
But if you can find that paper. Okay, so uh, uh, with, with respect to the CMB, um, you... Um, uh, well, like it's a very similar idea to the photon yeah, relay. People can do uh, ab initio calculations, taking all the the uh, uh, the the all the different energy levels that you have in the. Uh, this is simple because you have hydrogen, helium, and traces of lithium and beryllium. That's it, and calculate exactly what happens uh, when the universe expands. And this is what you would see. Um, this is the spectrum that you would see. There's no problem uh, there. Um, it would be a very nice uh, black body radiation. Um, for, for, you know, I mean, the thing is that you have additional processes which are not lines, but they are continuum. Uh, for example, you have just scattering of electrons, which is... Uh, it doesn't change the energy of the photons, but it uh, implies that uh, a, once you go deep enough, um, everything becomes like um, like uh, like fog or something, and you mix things even more effectively, such that other mechanisms which are less effective can take place. And other mechanisms uh, can be a, the lines are a, when you have what's called bound-bound transitions. Like you move, uh, you you allow an electrons uh, to change energy uh, from one atomic level to another one, but you have bound-free transitions, which is when you ionize. You take an electron and you ionize it, and even if you have a plasma where most of the hydrogen is ionized, occasionally an electron will recombine. And then another photon will be able to ionize it and it would form part of the uh, bound free opacity, which is continuous. Um, so, uh, and then you have a, you have a bound, sorry, free free transitions, Bremsstrahlung uh, it's called, uh, where a photon uh, can uh, interact with an electron in the presence of uh, an atom, and uh, give some of its energy to the to the nucleus, or, uh, and you get a, a an unelastic scattering, which will change the uh, energy of the photon. So you can mix photons in energy space and get something which looks uh, a more continuous, and therefore so a black body. Yeah, well, the Bremsstrahlung isn't really Planckian in its distribution. Yeah, it's continuous, absolutely, but it's not Planckian. It also has these like I know, huge but spikes that 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 You have a lot of uh, processes such that uh, if you if you uh, have a gas which is sufficiently uh, dense or, or the opt the column density is sufficiently large, uh, you you can show from statistical mechanics that you will necessarily get the uh, black body distribution. Do you think that that's an experiment that somebody should, that, that warrants being done so that there's actually a proof in the it's literature? It's not something, these are things which you can calculate. There are, uh, there are um, groups which calculate the opacities of uh, plasmas at different conditions at different frequencies. Uh, 
in Los Alamos and in Livermore, you can guess why they're doing this kind of calculations. <laughs> yeah, like, and there's no doubt that you can calculate that that is theoretically what should be happening. But it seems like the scale of that experiment is out of reach because of the pressures. Uh, and uh, uh, okay, so definitely temperatures, uh, which are, you know, a million degrees, it's relatively hard to do this experiment. Um, but I'm not, okay. Uh, I think these kind of experiments wouldn't be nice because all of these opacity tables which are used in astrophysics are calculated and it's very hard to, uh, it's very hard to do, as you say, to do experiments to uh, verify them, at least in you know, some part of phase space. So it wouldn't be nice to do that, but personally, it's not something which excites me because it is, you know, this or that atomic physics would be a little bit different. It's not like it's going to change uh, something, it's not going to be revolutionary in this, in this case, it would just, just be... I think you know changes of the ta- of the opacity tables unless opacity can not really be achieved in a gas. Yeah, so basically, I think that the the idea is. But, I mean, but you see that you see that when I mean, you look at the sun and mm. you see the the spectra, you see. Um, I mean, the, the reason you see a spectral line, an absorption line, is because uh, uh, from the atmosphere, right? You see it from the atmosphere because there's a gradient in the te- in the temperature, and um, a, a, a a frequency uh, which has a higher opacity uh, is going to implies that the I mean if you go if if you look inward if you, have, if you look with a line of sight uh, towards the sun and ask where did this photon come from, if it's a photon within a line it would be coming from further out where the density is lower and the uh, temperature is lower. So the black body radiation at this frequency is lower. Basically, uh, the reason you see an emission, uh, sorry, an absorption line is at different frequencies, you see the different black bodies coming from different depths in the star. At the frequency of the line, um, the depth is relatively shallow. The temperature is low. So you see the black body radiation of, say, 4,000 degrees, and that's 5,000 degrees. Outside the line, you have to go further inside uh, to to have this photon absorbed or or conversely emitted from Kirchhoff loss, which is basically a, a conservation uh, it means that, okay, so outside the line, you would see the photon coming from further inside where the temperature is higher. Incidentally, there is a very interesting effect. Uh, have you ever looked uh, at an image of the sun and noticed that the uh, limb of the sun is darker than the center? And the, the the reason you have it is because the surface is a gas. It's not a solid surface. It's not a liquid or anything like that. What happened is that uh, a photon coming from the center uh, traverses the atmosphere uh, vertically. So it can it could have been emitted from further inside the atmosphere. 
If you're looking at a line of sight which is coming from the edge, from the limb of the sun, because it's a relatively oblique, it means that it should have arrived from further out in the atmosphere where the temperature is lower. So the fact that you see limb darkening in the sun, in the solar disk, proves that it's not a hard surface, it's a gaseous surface with a temperature gradient. I think that the surface of the sun being a gaseous atmosphere makes it's well established sense. yeah the the question is is there I, I think that the question fundamentally is about the interior structure of the sun and the mode of emission inside of it where if you take Kirchhoff's laws to and and you take the physical explanation for a Planckian blackbody spectrum to only be able to come from a lattice structure then the inside of the sun is not a pure gas, it has to have some kind of structure. Okay, so uh, I think this uh, argument is wrong because a gas without any lattice still has a, a mechanisms for a absorption and emission of light at any frequency. And this is because you don't only have what's called bound-bound transitions, you have also bound-free and free-free transitions, which imply that you have a you have an opacity at any frequency. It's not only particular uh, lines. Um, by the way, there is there was a very interesting debate um, back in the 1920s. Uh, between Eddington and Milne. And uh, a, one was uh, advocating that the stars are completely gaseous. And the other one was uh, advocating, I think it's Milne, was advocating models in which you have a, a solid-like a core and a, an atmosphere around it. Now, uh, it turns out that uh, if you, the, the, the description of uh, red giants it actually is much closer to this uh, description of Milne that you had, uh, that you have a dense core because the red giants uh, and even later stages, so it's called the symptotic gi uh, giant branch stars, they have a core which looks like a condensed uh, white dwarf, something where the pressure is held not by the radiation, but by the uh, electron degeneracy. And above that, you have an atmosphere. So uh, this kind of discussion that uh, you might have a, a solid or something that looks like a solid in the center is not, uh, it's not far-fetched. <laughs> mm. It was uh, part of the scientific debate a uh, hundred years ago. Yeah, that that discuss we've gone into that before. It's a really interesting argumentation that occurs. Uh, uh, there's a lot of people involved, uh, genes and uh, uh, who else. Um, but what's what's interesting is just from a purely like intro level. If you look at something that's glowing like a black body, it, it's the easiest explanation is just that it is a black body and that it's it is some sort of a condensed matter structure that is giving off temperature-dependent light. It, it, it just means that 
it has to be at all wavelengths where you see the black body, the opacity at those wavelengths has to be uh, times the, uh, the uh, column density of, the, of this object has to be uh, significantly larger than unity so that you could have had this thermalization at this frequency. And what I'm saying is that you can get thermalization at any frequency, even if it's a gas without any lattice structure, because you always have uh, additional mechanisms. Maybe they're not very effective and you need a lot of gas to do that, but you still have it. Um, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting that the only test case that we can use are already described by this tight theory in the first place. Like, we say that stars are the example where this experimentally is occurring, but the same theory is being used to explain the stars and how they're doing it. I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting... Well, but, circle. you know, this theory uh, predicts exactly what the, you know, what the density... Uh, what the speed of sound, for example, is going to be as a function of radius, and then you can uh, you can uh, look at a, a helioseismology. The sun is uh, vibrating, and you can uh, look at all these oscillation modes and uh, invert the problem, and from that uh, uh, recover the profile, the density or the the temperature profile of the sun as a function of radius. And mm. see that the theory, you know, works uh, to within, say, a few percent. Um, we know that the whole sun is a gas and, and, and things just add up. Uh, you couldn't have, you couldn't hide a, a, a solid-like structure uh, inside the sun because uh, it wouldn't be consistent with the uh, helioseismology mm. measurements that we have. Well, even seismicity, though, when we look at it in the laboratory, essentially requires a con condensed matter for acoustic waves and so forth. You don't see those in gases. Uh, for some type, well, uh, if you look at earthquakes, you have uh, three types of waves. Uh, you have uh, uh, pressure waves, which are acoustic waves, and you have also uh, shearing modes and other type of things like that. Uh, so obviously they don't exist uh, if you have a gas, uh, but acoustic waves, like sounds, uh, exist perfectly well, and uh, you can see that uh, uh, in the sun. You can you can take uh, very delicate Doppler images of the sun and see exactly how it's uh, how it's oscillating. So with um, there's there's surface waves on the sun though. So like if you look at um, sometimes there's images of eruptions that come away from the sun, like little droplets, and there's like concentric waves around the eruption on the surface of the sun. As would you expect that in a in a gas, or would you expect that in something that has a discrete <laughs> surface? No, no. It's uh, I mean it's it's like a, it's like acoustic waves. You know, if I if I uh, snap my fingers then there's an acoustic wave which propagates outwards. Uh, if you look at uh, documentaries of, uh, of bombs, uh, you know, of military bombs, uh, you can sometimes see the shockwave uh, propagate outwards. So you can see acoustic waves uh, propagating. So, uh, so what is that surface then? Like, what is the phase transition that's occurring there if, if it's not liquid to gas in the atmosphere? What is that surface? It's, the, I mean, it's simply, the, the, okay, the, the density is, you know, changing, the pressure is changing, uh, the whole, 
Um, Is it I a mean, phase it, transition? It, no, there's no phase transition, but uh, it's more complicated because it's acoustic waves uh, propagating in a stratified atmosphere. The fact that uh, the density that you have a density profile which is uh, not uh, homogeneous, um, and so so these oscillations also include uh, vertical motion of the of the atmosphere. So the atmosphere is moving up and down. You can see that um, a, another branch. Uh, so, it, it, so uh, stratified atmospheres have two types of waves. They have what's called acoustic waves and uh, gravity waves. It's not gravitational waves like uh, with LIGO. Um, it's just motion of the atmosphere up and down, like uh, like, the like waves on wave the sea. The yeah. What? Yeah, like it, waves on it, the it, sea. Exactly. Yeah. Moiety plays plays a role there. Um, so, uh, so uh, incompressible fluids can have surface waves only at the surface, like like water. But um, if it's a gas, then you can have the same uh, motions taking place, same type of oscillations taking place uh, in the whole atmosphere. And um, you can see that taking place. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, type gravity waves and clouds uh, in Google uh, Google images, and you would see uh, nice images of a. You have a wave in the atmosphere, and basically in some regions where the uh, well, you have wet uh, parcels of air rising. The cooling parcel would form clouds, and then when the parcel moves down. Uh, uh, it would heat and uh, you would get that the cloud evaporates. So you can get uh, lines of uh, clouds uh, tracing the regions of the wave where the uh, atmosphere uh, rose and uh, cooled down to form the, the, the cloud. Mm. You can also find time-lapse images you can, and you can actually see this wave propagating in the atmosphere. So the same thing happens also at the surface of the sun. You have this, uh, I don't know what, you have a coronal mass ejection or something like large perturbation. You perturb the uh, atmosphere and then the whole atmosphere would be moving up and down uh, just like these gravity waves in clouds or just like a pebble in a pond. So, so is that um, is that these waves exist even in gas and I mean there's no problem there. Is, so is that surface of the sun just a different atmospheric condensate or what is that when we look at those kernels on the surface of the sun? Are we seeing the equivalent uh, of clouds? See, you can see Doppler. You can see. I think you see the waves with the uh, Doppler images. Well, basically, you have the parcels moving towards you or away from you, and, and then uh, through Doppler uh, uh, shifts of um, of lines, you can basically see this motion. I sent you uh, by email a link to the picture that I was looking at, which is uh, okay. some kind of ejection on the surface of the sun. Because it, I mean, from my uneducated perspective, it looks different than the gravity waves in the clouds. Because the gravity waves in the clouds really do look like some kind of uh, yes. motion, like a directional motion, where I can imagine like a current of air that's rising and falling. But this seems like it's it looks so much like the the ripples on the on the surface of the pond that it does it, it's again to my uneducated view it looks like there's some kind of 
of interface there. Yeah, can you hold that up to the camera? Actually, I want to just show. <laughs> can you hold it up to this one, maybe? To to which one? To this guy. Okay, so I got the link. I'm opening it. I can't you see guys it. See that? No, I don't no. think so. They're like little ripples on a pond, basically. Yeah. I can make a time mark and let's see. Okay, uh, definitely looks like a ripple. Uh, let's see what are they measuring actually. It just looks so much like the surface of a pond. It's uncanny. Okay, so it is a Doppler imager. So indeed, uh, what they're seeing is the motion up and down. Um, the thing is that the gravitational waves are not excited by by uh, something which is localized. Uh, they're excited by, you know, you have shearing motion, um, but you can get waves which are propagating like waves in a pond. Um, uh, when Krakatau exploded in 1883, there was a density uh, wave which propagated all around uh, the Earth. And you could see that in... Uh, in uh, 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 in pressure gauges, you could actually uh, uh, see that the, the wave propagated uh, three and a half times around the Earth, mm. and uh, you could see that it's uh, propagating uh, in, in a in a circular motion. Incidentally, uh, there was when was it? Like two years ago, there yes. was a, another. There was a volcanic explosion in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. I saw the, that the one, Tonga yeah. volcano. But uh, it was Tonga, the, exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, what I did, I looked at the um, a weather station in a station in the Sahara Desert, which is almost exactly the opposite side. And what happened is that when you have this explosion, uh, it propagates, it diverges when it propagates out uh, further away. But then on the other side of the Earth, it converges, so you get a larger amplitude. And you can actually, uh, so in my my uh, uh, weather station in Israel, I could actually see one blip from uh, the wave coming. But um, a, in that station in a, a, the Sahara Desert, like near Timbuktu, <laughs> you could actually see it uh, um, several times. Like, uh, I think it was like one and a half passages or something like that. Mm. So these kind of waves also, uh, you know, take place on Earth, but you need the you know the right instrumentation uh, to see it. Like uh, with clouds, you have the clouds or the water vapor as, as the tracer. Uh, in the sun, uh, in what you the Soho images that you just sent, uh, you have Doppler images, so you can actually see it, uh, you know, the, the the gas moving up and down. Um, so it looks it looks like a pond, but it's not. It's gas. Fascinating. Mm, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot here to think about. This has been a wild ride through the galaxy, through the stars, through, you know, the the social pressures that we're living under in terms of science. I, I it's it's been a really wonderful conversation. Do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, science is fun. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. No, really. It's like um, I think my um, uh, 
my scientific adventure has been, uh, it's a lot of fun because, you know, it's the strange things, the, the things that you don't expect, um, which makes everything uh, worthwhile. I, uh... I think uh, Arthur Conan Doyle put uh, the following words in, uh, in the mouth of Sherlock Holmes, but it's Arthur Conan Doyle, of course. Uh, and he said that uh, uh, truth is stranger than fiction because fiction is obliged to stick to uh, possibilities. Truth isn't. Hmm. Yeah, there's only one story at the end of the day. And we're all moving towards it, hopefully. I do have one question. The picture on your Wikipedia page of you, you look like you're somewhere high up in the mountains. You look like you're maybe uh, in the Himalayas. Ah, yes, it is in the Himalayas. <laughs> it's in uh, Yunnan province. Did you, climb, did you climb the mountains or you were just visiting? Uh, so uh, I, I, was, uh, I, I did a trek there uh, with my wife. And uh, we actually wanted to do a trek in uh, Nepal uh, this, uh, like a month ago. But uh, eventually we found ourselves uh, in conferences in Japan, both of us. So we went to Japan instead, which is not really uh, a bad thing. <laughs> Very nice. So next year, next year we're going to be in Nepal. Well, I hope it's a good trip. That's awesome. Um, yeah, thank you, Nir. Thank you so much for coming by and helping us understand these things and um, yeah, I really look forward to just seeing what you come up with next. You've had a, a wide-ranging career so far, so I expect nothing less in the future. Well, I hope so. I mean, it's a... Uh... Anyway, it was uh, fun talking to you guys as well. Right. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great rest of your day, sir. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, not much left, anyway. It's like a quarter to 11. All right. Well, sleep well. Yeah. Good night. Thanks. Sir.